from WPVMLP in Asheville. It's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Catherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is Sufjan Stevens.
There are people in your life that, as you're growing up, you take for granted. They're part of the woodwork, part of the everyday, a piece of your routine. Only when you're older, and unfortunately, often once they're gone, you start to see the larger ripple around their existence. You start to understand that they had a much, much larger impact than you ever knew. Michelle Clark grew up in New York City, the grandkid of immigrants. Here's Jessica Korn reading Michelle Clark's Bounty. My grandfather, my Zadie in Yiddish, was Shmulka Bernstein. He disembarked at Ellis Island as a young man at the turn of the 20th century and prospered as a kosher butcher serving other devout immigrant Jews who had arrived from Eastern Europe fleeing poverty and persecution. His name was writ large in neon above the plate glass window, which framed his store on New York's Lower East Side. Below, in smaller blinking letters, there was added, where kashrut is king and quality rules. He was literate in Jewish liturgy and religiously diligent. When he was an old man but still overseeing the business, he would laugh while opening the envelope that held his social security check each month. Free money? What a country! Then he scribbled his endorsement on the back and handed it to one of his sons to deposit along with the business receipts. His money and the business's money were combined. His personal needs were modest. The brand Schmulka Bernstein had two celebrated products, both notably American. One was the five-pound beef salami, not originally an Eastern European food. The other was fry beef, which, as far as we know, he invented. Fry beef is a kosher version of bacon, taken from the fatty underside of the steer, as bacon comes from pork bellies. Schmulka Bernstein's fry beef was sold in the same folded cardboard packaging as its Gentile prototype. The salamis and the fry beef were both produced right next to the retail store, in a windowless, two-story brick building. The memory of these products has endured several decades past the actual life of the business. As recently as 2017, in an issue of the online magazine Tablet, the writer and editor Morton Landown recalled, an apocryphal yet believable story that a group of yeshiva college students spending the year in Israel pooled their funds and dispatched one of their number to New York with explicit instructions to fill two suitcases with Shmulka's food, and then, without seeing or contacting a single family member, returned to Israel on the next flight. To those living at the time and in the family, my grandfather's other activity of note was his open-handedness to Jews in need. They called him the Angel of Rivington Street, Aunt Natalie once told us. He brought people home so he could feed them, Aunt Lillian chimed in. My cousin Herman tells a story of being six or seven years old and walking up Rivington Street towards Orchard with his father and Zadie. As we walked... A big man who looked kind of scary to me. He was wobbling when he walked, sort of tipping. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe he was sick. I don't know. He stopped right in front of us and stuck out his hand. Zadie looked up at him and asked, Do you want food or money? The man said money. So Zadie took out a big wad of bills from his pants pocket and peeled off a few and put them in the man's hand. Then the man walked away in the other direction. Shmulka Bernstein did not look like an important or a prosperous person. He did not look like anyone's benefactor or like a man whose funeral service in 1968 would overflow the possibilities of the Bialstocker Synagogue on Willett Street, with people who could not squeeze in weeping on the steps outside. 
He did not look like an empire builder, and he certainly did not look like people or literature think of as a butcher. He was less than five feet tall. He had small, shapely hands with slim fingers. Winter or summer, he dressed the same during the work week. A fedora, then a white butcher's coat covering a business suit jacket, and beneath that, a vest. Underneath that, a shirt and tie, so that he seemed lost in his own clothes. Pockets in his white coat, pockets in his suit jacket, pockets in his vest. One of these pockets contained wrinkled $2 bills, which were unusual even in those days. These he rescued from the cash register to give to us, the grandchildren. So you knew he thought about you when you weren't there. Thick, green-tinted eyeglasses, a treatment for glaucoma, dominated his face and made his expressions unreadable. The glasses added to the sense we, the grandchildren, had that he was remote, unworldly, someone other. To us, the grandchildren, he seemed like a person from another planet. And so he was, the planet of Poland. That, like Superman's planet Krypton, had imploded, at least in terms of the Jews. The planet of Poland was now impossible to reach. It was sealed behind the Iron Curtain, a phrase that newscasters pronounced ominously each night on our black-and-white televisions. This meant that you could not get in, and no one was allowed to leave. I imagined it literally as an endless corrugated steel wall. In an odd way, this felt like a kind of justice, since the millions of Jews who had once lived there had been erased. He relished American bounty in all its forms. At home in the evenings, he liked to watch the old westerns on television. His English was not acute enough to follow the plots, but it gave him pleasure to see herds of healthy cattle thunder across the American plains. Enough beef to feed the world. This land of plenty was so different from the place where he was born. In Poland at the turn of the 20th century, a butcher was not like a butcher here. This is what his fourth son, my Uncle Harry, said when I interviewed him in 2005. There he would do everything from start to finish. He would go out to the farm, buy a piece of cattle, one, not more than one. That's all they could deal with was one. Buy it, bring a truck or rent one, bring it to Bialystok to a slaughterhouse. It was by hand, everything by hand. He would oversee the slaughter. I don't think he did the skinning, but had to do the rest of it. We don't know who paid for it, who had the money to buy the whole animal. There must have been an entrepreneur involved, had to be. There was a lot of money involved. A wrinkled brown paper bag holding birdseed was always tucked beneath the cash register at the store. Once a day, Zadie retrieved it, walked outside to the sidewalk in front of the store. Then he pursed his lips and gave a shrill, moist whistle that we, the grandchildren, could never imitate no matter how many times he showed us how to do it. Seconds after the whistle, first maybe 10 pigeons, then 20, then many more were fluttering to the pavement at his feet as if they had been waiting for his call, clucking struts and manic pecking as Zadie tossed grain in a circle. On the perimeter, sparrows and starlings hopped up and down, hopefully. With the wide arc of his arm, he made sure that even these small feathery brown and black outliers got a share too. Everybody eats. In New York City, feeding pigeons is illegal. 
Sometimes a passing patrolman gave him a ticket. This happened once while I was visiting. The policeman was towering, large-headed, matter-of-fact. He had done this before. He knew it would do no good. It's illegal, Mr. Bernstein, he said as he pulled out his pad. Then, just to make sure my grandfather understood, he repeated himself, but more slowly and loudly. Mr. Bernstein, it's against the law. From beneath the brim of his gray fedora, my grandfather peered up at the guardian of law and order and gave a small, crooked smile. Feeding the hungry is a problem? Later, one of my uncles who worked in the store walked over to the police station to pay the fees. This happened many times. Fine after fine, every penalty was paid. Everybody eats.
reach my home in that land somewhere with my friends who meet me over there free from pain and care I'll ever be time has made a change in me time has made a change in the old home place time has made a change with each smile and I know my friends can plainly see Time has made a change in me Time has made a change in the old home place Time has made a change with each smile getting used to the chaos of this pandemic yet? After the better part of a year, it's been hard settling into the new normal, but it's astounding what you get used to under pressure. For a Midwesterner like Gina Beach, the effects of the pandemic might have come late if she'd stayed where she was from. Instead, she followed a flame to England just days before the lockdown and wound up learning an entirely new country and way of life in the brief moments she was allowed outside each day. I followed my heart to Bristol, England. After two years of long-distance dating and nuptials at the Chicago courthouse in December, my spouse visa arrived in my passport at the end of February, before anyone knew how strange 2020 would be. I was taking the plunge to start a new life abroad, and my British husband asked how long I needed to organize my affairs. I told him I could be ready in a fortnight. He bought me a one-way ticket in early March. Less than a week after arriving in the UK, COVID-19 managed to alter my plans of building community and discovering my new city. Normally known as a city full of culture, music, hip restaurants, and trendy bars, I was looking forward to dining at Bristol's Whopping Wharf container pop-ups, finding the best curry houses, and sampling Michelin-starred fare. I thought restaurant closures would mean I would feel far removed from the UK culinary scene. Instead, I found myself totally captivated by what's free and available right outside my doorstep. I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, and spent my 20s living in Chicago. While I'm no stranger to the urban garden, farmer's markets, or unusual ingredients on modern menus, I was totally surprised that my new slow pace of life led me to become an urban forager. It started innocently enough as I found myself using a stick to dig up wild garlic while on a run in Oldbury Court Estate one day. 
I added the fragrant leaves to stir fries and turned them into pesto with pecorino and pine nuts. A bit of olive oil, salt, pepper. I joined an online forum and swapped tips about where to find it and how much to cut. The tender leaves and oniony shoots of the ramp's European cousin became a consistent mainstay in my fridge during a confusing, socially distant spring. I, like millions of other child-free homeworkers, started baking sourdough bread, planted a garden, and took long walks for my government-approved one form of exercise per day during lockdown. Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced in what would become his signature doublespeak that if you can, residents must stay local, meaning I had to walk, run, or cycle to open spaces near my home rather than drive. My husband and I joked that we'd traded newlywed bliss for the retiree lifestyle, watching the plants grow and cooking elaborate meals. Described as a city in the countryside, I became infatuated with the array of culinary delights on offer in the network of 400 public parks that crisscross the 42 square miles of Bristol. And while there were no official time constraints on being out and about, the mandate to minimize the time you were out of your home from March to July made me feel like I was bending the rules, if not breaking the rules, if I went out for more than an hour or two. We planned just long enough bike rides next to the river, through graveyards, and past old stately homes. While I knew we weren't allowed to sit on park benches or linger, I convinced myself that foraging counted as exercise. And anyone who's ever gardened will confirm, picking crops is definitely physical work. So, just as the wild garlic was going to seed, the trees started to bloom. We took to spending evenings in the parks with friends, and my scavenger hunt continued with a new goal in mind, elderflower. I cut the fragrant bunches from trees in Greenview Cemetery, and once I made a positive ID, I started seeing elder trees everywhere. I made a cordial from a recipe traced back to Roman times. Soaking pollen-laden flowers overnight, then straining and boiling down the liquid with a sack of sugar. My home brewer husband and I made elderflower champagne, modifying his ginger beer recipe and adding in the delicate white flowers. In late summer, while cycling through the Cotswolds area of outstanding natural beauty, could there be a more British moniker? I noticed the blackberries had finally ripened and turned from fuchsia to deep purple. I learned that over 20 species of them grow in the UK. Some are sour, some are sweet, but all are delightful to stumble across and taste. I stopped at every bramble patch, sampling and comparing the fruit. I found tiny juicy wild strawberries that tasted even better given their adorable compactness. The more I talked about how much I was enjoying Mother Nature's wild treasures, the more people shared their knowledge. I learned about the beautiful purple weed Himalayan balsam that can be made into a curry. Ah. <laughs> a friend showed me the salty sea plant Samphire while camping in Wales. Then she told me that Tesco, the local grocery chain, sells this tasty succulent for a whopping £15.66 per kilogram. I felt 
like I'd struck gold being able to harvest it myself. Gin and tonic, rivals tea for the UK's most celebrated beverage. And while I'm not distilling my own, yet, I started infusing my own botanicals. The slow berries of the blackthorn bush make for a delicious and colorful infusion that should be ready by Christmas. Next year, I'll try infusing dandelions and burdock root. (sighs) So, there are times when you deliberately uproot your life, heeding the call of adventure and the unknown. There are other times when the universe laughs at your plans and lays out a wholly new direction for you to embrace or reject. As the city opens, I've been hesitant to visit bars and restaurants, but I'm already preparing to collect the hazelnuts, hawthorn, and rosehips as summer turns to autumn and new wild foods ripen, just waiting to be foraged. Rachel Bachman reading Gina Beach's Uprooted. Look for that story on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is back open and serving its farm-fresh foods with socially distanced tables, outdoor seating, takeout, and adherence to all COVID guidelines. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. For more information on our underwriters or to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
I miss my college cafeteria. What could you possibly miss about your college cafeteria? <laughs> I, I miss all the choices. I miss this bounty of breakfast and lunch and dinner kind of all wrapped into one place, served 24-7. And Where did you go to college? I went to college at UNC Asheville. Is the cafeteria decent there? Oh my gosh, it was amazing. Oh, because I, where I went, it was just like, it was a really crappy food service system in the lowest tier. It was, everything was gray. It was, <laughs> there were a lot of choices of the same, like, canned vegetables. Oh no. Yeah. No, we had, um, we had a cereal bar, a salad oh. bar, a hot bar. Um, we had a saute uh, station. You had a saute station? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, man. where you could just like create these rice and vegetable and protein bowls. And uh, and then, of course, and we, I think we had a pizza station. There was so, there were so many things to choose from. And it didn't matter if you were, you know, a carnivore like me or if you were a vegetarian, which I became in my sophomore year. That cafeteria was, was there for me through all my phases of college life. Huh. <laughs> Did you know a lot of people that worked at the cafeteria? That's the thing. I didn't know a single soul, and I didn't oh, really? get to know them. Oh, yeah. at, at, my, at my school. I mean, I went to a very small college, so you knew just about everybody that worked at your cafeteria. And you'd, and you'd give them hell. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really interesting how we start to take for granted the people that we see every day, but we never bother to learn their names or, or know what they're going through. Yeah, and in the middle of a pandemic, those are the people on the front lines that you don't really hear about, the cafeteria workers. No, you never really hear about them until, you know, moments like these. So here's Delina Hensley reading Ellen Levitt's Empty Cafeteria Lines. Working in a school cafeteria has its pros and cons, and I ought to know, because many years ago in my first year at college, I worked fall semester at our cafeteria, followed by spring term at another cafeteria across campus. Most of the time, my job was serving food, but I also cleaned and transported supplies to food stations, citrus fruit to the juice bar, for example, and helped maintain the frozen yogurt machines. Besides being paid minimum wage, I also received a few meals per week and met some nice people. Many college students need to work a job, or two, or three, while at school. On-campus jobs are attractive because they are easy to obtain, often within walking or biking distance from dorms and classrooms, and can be tied into financial aid packages. When I was campaigning for a student government position, I schmoozed with students who were waiting on the line for their meals. At the same time, I realized that some students looked down on someone like me, someone who took a less-than-glamorous campus job. Back then, my fellow workers and I were required to wear aprons, gloves, and hats, and observe various cleanliness protocols. Today, with the COVID-19 pandemic and concerns about social distancing, cafeterias must take additional steps to ensure the safety of students as well as themselves. Calf workers are considered essential workers, which shows them more respect than before, but also creates a job position fraught with worry and additional steps. Take Melissa, for example. Melissa is a longtime friend of my daughter, Jessica. They've known each other since nursery school. Melissa has worked at the cafeteria at SUNY State University of New York, Oswego. When she's in the cafeteria, Melissa serves food, works at the deli station, washes dishes in big pots, she says, although most of her shifts are just serving food. 
Even though the work hasn't always been easy, she has appreciated certain aspects of the job. I met a lot of great people, which made work a lot more enjoyable, she says. The dining hall was connected to my residence hall, which made it very convenient to show up to work. Every dining hall serves something a little different, and after we finished our shifts, the boss would let us take whatever food was left over, and there were many opportunities to pick up shifts, which allowed me to make more money per week. What I disliked about the job? Serving food over an oven gets really hot, and I started sweating a lot. Also, in this dining hall, most of the time, the line was long, and it would be hard to ever catch a break. As far as cleanliness goes, Melissa says the supervisors and managers are very strict. Before we would start our shift, we had to wash our hands, put on gloves, and put on a hairnet. For some guys, they had to put on a beard net. I interacted pretty well with all of my co-workers. There were some I knew on a personal level, and others I would just greet hello and goodbye. As for my supervisors, I was comfortable enough to hold a conversation with them and ask them for anything I needed. In general, the whole staff was very nice, and they also made sure we were working in a safe and comfortable environment. But now, things have changed somewhat. Social distancing affects this kind of job, she says, because they're not allowed to physically eat in the dining hall anymore. Instead, Melissa explains, they have a pickup system where you order off an app called Get, and the order is sent to the dining hall. The workers pack up everything into a bag and then notify you when the order is ready for pickup. This way, we don't possibly eat next to someone who has COVID-19. Essentially, there are not as many workers needed and all the stations are not being utilized, which results in fewer jobs for students. And of course, we have to wear masks now, which I think makes it harder to hear and understand people. Michal is another friend of my daughter Jessica, and they worked together in the kitchen at their sleepaway camp two years ago, slicing meats, helping to cook meals, cutting up vegetables, cleaning, and more. Michal also worked at a student cafeteria at SUNY Oneonta, making sandwiches and wraps. She mentioned that some students would be picky about their orders, and she had to be patient. She did get to eat some food at the cafeteria, but she's become a vegan and has less choices because of that. But she would eat available salads after her shifts and certain sandwiches. Both Melissa and Michal mentioned that they had to be on their feet a lot during work, which sometimes wasn't easy. Students such as Melissa and Michal are just two of the thousand student cafeteria workers whose stories are rarely highlighted when we discuss food or college campuses, or even the risk of coronavirus to workers, since we usually focus on doctors and nurses, EMTs, and even bus drivers. Now, most college students are either picking up their pre-ordered meals or getting their pre-ordered meals delivered to the front desks of their dorms. Kitchen staff is mostly out of sight, Interactions between the serving staff and the students have been greatly minimized. In fact, college cafeterias and school cafeterias in general are going to need additional funding in order to prepare and maintain safety standards for the pandemic. As an article in The Atlantic points out, the silent suffering of school cafeteria workers is a serious matter, and these workers need to be protected from COVID-19, not just from knife slices and oil burns, And a New York Times article that covered workplace condition problems faced by cafeteria workers points out that poor ventilation and high temperatures, near ovens and sinks in particular, are now even tougher to deal with when cafeteria workers are wearing masks. 
Cafeteria workers like Melissa and Michal need masks, gloves, and many other safety items. They shouldn't feel like they're putting themselves at greater risk just so they can serve meals to students. Too often, these workers are overlooked and underappreciated. They need to be respected and protected. It's a great first job to have on campus, Melissa says. It taught me time management, responsibility, and having the ability to handle work, classes, and the clubs I'm involved in on campus. What will this first campus job look like in the future? How will it change the lives of other workers like Melissa and Michal? Right now, the cafeteria lines are empty. For how long, none of us can answer.
We never really do themes, but there seems to be an inadvertent one on this show. Have you noticed there's like a time capsule thing going on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the story's like frozen in their moments. But that's what makes them so great. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that, you know, one thing that I've, I have definitely been doing a lot of this year is visiting shows and listening to stories that are taking place in a time other than the one that we're currently living in a little escapism yeah just just to regain hope and to regain some some innocence or that moment before we lost innocence you know and I think that that's what's really special about about the ability to freeze time in a story and and to evoke that moment so so visually so perfectly (laughs) yeah and what I liked about the the story that opened this show and and this one coming up is that they both kind of capture a specific period, but that could also kind of been any time. Yes. Um, this one in particular, we're, I could be at any working at any restaurant in any era and feel feel the same way. Beth Copeland worked at a Shoney's back in the 1970s, and uh, I feel like this is the same kind of interaction I've had with working in a bar in the 2000s. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just the same kind of feeling, the same interactions. But here's her tale of the Shoney's showdown. Christy Cortese reads it. I twist my shoulder-length hair into a bun and bobby pin my Shoney's big boy cap onto the crown of my head. I hate my frumpy uniform, a white blouse, brown skirt, and orange apron with deep pockets where I stash my tips, ballpoint pen, and order forms. When I get to the restaurant, I'll pin on the oversized button I'm required to wear that says, Try my fresh strawberry pie. The manager at the big boy restaurant is stout and has a Dwight D. Eisenhower crew cut, small pig-like eyes and a pug nose. He never says much to me, thank goodness. He's usually in the office in the back doing whatever he does or sitting at one of the tables drinking coffee and talking to Jackie, the head waitress. Hatchet-faced Jackie is my nemesis. She's always on my tail, waiting for me to make a mistake so she can yell at me in front of the customers. Her mousy hair is pulled back in a faux tortoise shell barrette and covered with a hairnet like a cafeteria lunch lady's. Her chin juts out angrily beneath her pinched lips and Dick Tracy nose. Once her mother brought Jackie's daughter to the restaurant for lunch, Jackie's little girl looks just like her, poor thing. She's only five and still cute in a tomahawk-faced way. When Jackie smiled at her little girl, her features softened, and she looked sweet, almost pretty. Then she saw me looking at her. Don't just stand there, refill the ketchup, she barked. George, the busboy, wears a white cap, like the big boy mascots, and a soiled white apron. He's as pale as Wonder Bread, short and skinny, and wears knee-high bottle glasses that make his blue eyes look like huge, blurry pools. Like Clark Kent, George has a secret identity. Timid busboy by day, union rabble-rouser by night. When he found out that I had just completed my freshman year at St. Andrews, where a young Marxist professor from Duke had just joined the faculty, He whispered his plan as he cleared water glasses, plates, and silverware from the table. The only reason I'm here is to unionize the workers. Lynn is the waitress the truck drivers like. She's in her mid-twenties with honey blonde hair teased into a beehive. She has blue eyes like a Siamese cat's and speaks with a soft southern draw. When she walks, she swivels her hips with her toes pointed out. She's kind of snooty and doesn't talk to me. But she's not mean like Jackie. Lynn is divorced and lives in a trailer with two white poodles named Bella and Pierre. Ralph the cook works at the grill, turning the circular metal rack where I clip orders. Ralph likes me because I always smile and say please and thank you, so he makes sure my orders get out quickly. 
Sometimes, when it's not busy, we talk for a minute or two while I'm wiping down the counter or refilling the salt and pepper shakers. Ralph, who dreams of going to art school, is from Spanish Harlem. Talk about rough, he said, as I stood there waiting for him to add some fresh onion rings to a half-pound-o ground-round platter. Imagine growing up there as a black kid. I don't know anything about Spanish Harlem, except the song about a rose that I've heard on the radio, but I smile as if I know what he means. Jackie shoves her tray into the small of my back. Move it, slugass, she mutters. I'm filling a tumbler of crushed ice with sweet tea for a customer. Where does she expect me to go? As I place a lemon wedge on the rim of the tumbler, I nudge my stomach into the counter a little so she can squeeze around me and get to the soft drink dispenser on the other side. Every day at Shoney's Big Boy is stressful. But today is even worse than usual because several busloads of tourists unexpectedly pulled in just as the lunch rush started. Now every table in my station is full, and I'm scrambling, trying to get glasses of ice water to all the tables, take their orders, bring their beverages, and tune out the whining from impatient customers. Where's our food? The dough-faced man at table six demands, his jowls quivering in indignation. We've been waiting for half an hour. I shoot him a fake Miss America smile as I balance a tray of big boy and Slim Jim combos over my shoulder and make a beeline for table eight. As all this happens, I'm also trying to fend off men making corny comments when I take their orders. I'd like a slice of your fresh strawberry pie, one snorts, as he eyes the enormous button on my blouse while his buddies chortle. At another table, a man old enough to be my father says he'd like me for dessert. I'm not on the menu, I say with a tight smile. My cheeks ache from smiling. My feet hurt. I need to pee, but can't leave the floor for a bathroom break. A man wearing a Peterbilt cap at the counter orders a piece of strawberry pie. I look for the metal slicer we use to measure the pieces. Each slice of pie is supposed to be exactly the same size as the others. The slicer's not in the drawer where it's supposed to be. It's not on the counter. I run back to the kitchen to ask George if he knows where it is. He looks up, his glasses fogged with steam from the scalding water as he lugs a plastic tub of dirty dishes over to the dishwasher. I haven't seen it. Ralph is busy with orders, so I don't ask him. Why should I make the man wait while I run all over the kitchen looking for that stupid slicer? Grabbing a knife, I cut a triangular slice of pie and plop it on a plate. I shake up the whipped cream can and spritz a white mound on top of the red strawberry filling. What the hell are you doing, Jackie yells, as I place the pie in front of the Peterbilt guy, giving him a fresh fork and napkin. Serving a customer? You're not supposed to cut the pie without the slicer, she yells. How stupid are you? Peterbilt points his fork at her and says, hey, it's okay. But Jackie, who's on the warpath, ignores him. I throw my order book on the counter. Look, I'm sick of you yelling at me. I'm doing the best I can. I looked everywhere, but I couldn't find it. You're supposed to use the slicer, she yells. Don't you know anything? You know what? I put my hands on my hips, assuming a sugar bowl pose. I could walk out the store right now and leave you short-staffed and scrambling. Would that make you happy? Jackie's eyes widen. I've never talked back to her before. I have two more weeks before I go back to school. I'll quit today if that's what you want. Right now, right this minute. I don't care. Jackie's been struck dumb, as if she's dissolving like the witch on the Wizard of Oz. She turns on her heel and scurries away. Why hadn't I realized this before? She holds no power over me. Being head waitress at Shoney's Big Boy is probably the best job Jackie will ever have. She can't quit her job. She has to keep working to provide for her little girl. I'm not Jackie, or Lynn, or even Ralph, the artist, who will never make enough money working at Big Boy to pay for art school. I'm a college kid. My job is temporary. If I run out of money, I can go home and live with my parents for the rest of the summer. No wonder she hates me. 
Peterbilt wipes his mouth, wads up his paper napkin, and leaves some change next to his plate. By this time tomorrow, he'll be halfway across the country eating pie at a truck stop counter, making small talk with another waitress. Like him, I'm just passing through. In two weeks, I'll never see Jackie again, or George, or Lynn, or Ralph. I'll be back at school. I pick up the quarter Peter Bell left on the counter. It glows like a moon in my palm. As I walk over to table two to take an order, my apron pocket sags with the weight of coins that jingle a little as I carry glasses of ice water to the customers. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, the Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 41st anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, the Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. For more information on our underwriters or to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. Copyright 2020. All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes, as well as subscribe to the show and help keep us going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Sufjan Stevens, Sam Amadon, The Fawns, Adrian Linker, Bjork, Jersey Matuskowitz, Tricky, Massive Attack, Laurie Spiegel, Booker T and the MGs, and The Meters. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. <laughs>